Welcome back, everyone, to John Dillinger, Part 2, The Lady in Red, and the story of the most wanted criminal gang in U.S. history and how the FBI finally caught up with them. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and this is 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. When the film crew for the Michael Mann film Public Enemies came to the rural town of Manitowish Waters, Wisconsin, in the summer of 2008, to shoot some scenes covering the legendary shootout between the Dillinger gang and the FBI, they were all treated to a tour of the Little Bohemia Lodge, which still bears the bullet holes and scars from the wild melee today. Little Bohemia Lodge is located about 13 miles north of the little town of Mercer, Wisconsin, and it's smack in the middle of nowhere, unless you like hunting and fishing. In that case, it's smack in the middle of paradise. For the Dillinger gang, in 1934, the Little Bohemia Lodge and Restaurant, built in 1929 by Emil Winatka, was the perfect secluded hideaway. The lodge was a large, rambling two-story, the lower portion consisting of fresh-hewn logs and the upper with white-painted wood siding. It was all hidden in the woods off Highway 51 in Manitowish Waters, at the end of a long, narrow gravel driveway. There is and was a lake behind the lodge stocked with all kinds of fish, There were cottages adjacent to the lodge for guests to use when there was no room remaining at the inn. On the afternoon of April 20th, 1934, members of the Dillager gang began arriving for what would be their first and last reunion. The hunting season there was over, and the fishing season hadn't commenced. Not that it made any difference to these guys and gals, but the locals noticed. A large arrival of guests at that time of the year. The gang members did not show any weapons, nor did they discuss business anywhere where the owners and staff could overhear. Dillinger had arrived alone. John Hamilton had come with Patricia Charrington. The deadly Homer Van Meter had come up from Chicago with his Italian sweetheart Marie Comperty. Babyface Nelson and his devoted wife Helen Gillis was there. Tommy Carroll and his wife Jean Crompton. And Pat Riley, who at one time had been a mascot of the St. Paul Baseball Club and somehow got looped in with the gang through a friend was there. Altogether, six men and four women. They played cards, took strolls in the woods, and didn't party loudly. Although they did their best to keep it all low-key, the owners, Mr. and Mrs. Wanatka, kept an ear to the door, so to speak. In fact, John Dillinger would later say, you couldn't whisper your own thoughts to your pillow without Mrs. Wanatka knowing all about it ten minutes afterwards and likely he did do some talking to his pillow, as Billy Frechette had been caught and arrested just recently, so she was out of the picture. The Wanatkas enjoyed the money, but they also knew that this was Dillinger and his gang, and that one day they were going to have to come clean. So they waited a little over two weeks and finally got word out to the FBI using a friend of a friend of a friend to do it. Later they would make up a story about how the gang just stormed in and took them all hostage, but that was pure BS to get the name of their lodge out there in the press. FBI agent Melvin Purvis in Chicago received the tip that the Dillinger gang was staying at the Little Bohemia Lodge, and soon the Chicago FBI office was a bustling crime-busting center, calling agents in from other states, coordinating men and materials with the St. Paul office, and arranging transportation and weaponry for a raid. The raid would launch out of the airfield at Rhinelander, from which they started the 50-mile journey toward the Little Bohemia Lodge, a journey which took place mostly over bumpy, gravel, rain-filled back roads, and it wasn't long before their five cars were three cars with armored men standing on the running boards of the remaining three and doing their best to hang on through the puddles and potholes. There were 16 agents altogether, 
with a full supply of machine guns, tear gas guns, rifles, shotguns, and steel vests, and they had to park the cars some distance from the long driveway that led into the lodge. They had a crude map, but no local guides. But heck, these were G-men hired from the top colleges in the States and trained in every manner of police business and weaponry. No one was going to escape their net. Purvis outlined their attack. He and five men would make a frontal assault. The remaining men would split left and right in a pincher movement, five on each side. The lodge was flooded with light. Suddenly, two men wearing blue denim overalls and one wearing a mackinaw emerged from the front door of the lodge. As the men started to get in their car, the G-men shouted at them to halt, but didn't identify who they were, and the men, confused by the yelling coming from the agents, jumped in the car and threw it into gear, trying to get out of harm's way. The G-men opened up with their machine guns, never thinking that these guys might be innocent lodgers, killing Eugene Bosineau, who was an advisor at a local civilian conservation corps camp, hitting John Morris, the chief of the CCC camp, four times, and wounding John Hoffman, a gas station attendant from Mercer, Wisconsin, who took a slug in the arm before he was able to run off into the darkness of the woods beyond the lodge lights. That left two badly wounded men in the car, who were crying out for medical attention as the gun smoke cleared, amidst the bane of the dogs that the lodge kept for hunting parties, and the car radio blasting the sounds of a dance orchestra. The planned FBI raid was quickly turning into a gruesome comedy of errors. The G-men literally didn't know what to do at that point, but they didn't have long to think. Dillinger and his men had been playing cards downstairs, had heard the gunfire, and had raced upstairs, grabbing their weapons, and they were now firing through the second-story windows. The owner, Earl Wanatka, rushed to the barroom with his wife and opened the trap door to the basement where he and his wife would hide out until the smoke cleared. The five G-men on the right had become hopelessly entangled in barbed wire and never did get into the fight. The five on the left had lost time trying to cross a drainage ditch and got into it late. Melvin Purvis and his men were peppering the lodge now that they were receiving fire from the upstairs windows. This went on for about ten minutes. With all the shooting going on, it took a little bit of time for the FBI agents to realize that there was no shooting coming from the lodge. It had stopped. It had taken even less time for Dillinger's men to realize that no shooting was coming from the rear of the lodge and they all hightailed it for the lake by climbing out the rear upstairs windows. Then they split up. Dillinger, Van Meter, and Red Hamilton found their way to a resort owned by E.H. Mitchell, where they appropriated a car. Babyface Nelson, who had headed in a different direction, encountered two federal agents at another nearby resort and ordered them to get out of their car. When they did, Nelson, a cold-blooded killer, opened fire. FBI agent Baum was killed instantly, and their driver, a local lawman named Christensen, was hit twice and fell down. The second FBI agent tried to wrestle the gun from the smaller baby-faced Nelson and was knocked out by a slug that grazed his head. Lucky for him, Nelson left him for dead. Back at the Little Bohemia Lodge, after a long wait out in the cold, damp, dark woods that lasted until 4 a.m. the next morning, Purvis decided to order the group on the right to fire some tear gas canisters through the upstairs windows. Some of these bounced off the windows and exploded amongst the attackers, creating havoc. One of the women inside appeared in a window and yelled out, Please stop firing! We'll come out! And they did. Soon three of the gang women, Helen Gillis, Marie Comforty, and Jean Crompton, walked out of the lodge. The fourth woman, Pat Charrington, had taken a ride into St. Paul earlier that day, and on her return had passed one of the gang's cars speeding away from the lodge. 
at which point she turned around and followed. Someone in this car that she had seen, and it turned out to be Van Meter, was tossing money out in an effort to distract whoever it was who was following them, not knowing that Pat was in the car that was following them. She stopped and started picking up the money, which she later returned to them, honoring the old maxim that there is honor among thieves. Mrs. Gillis, Miss Comfortee, and Miss Crompton were booked and transferred to Madison, Wisconsin, where they were initially sentenced to one year and a day, but a local judge let them off on probation with an order to return home and stay out of trouble. The FBI wound up with one federal agent and one citizen dead, one police officer and two local citizens wounded, and zero gangsters captured, plus a bullet-ridden lodge and a total public relations disaster. It was a national embarrassment for the FBI. Purvis's job was threatened by local citizens who wanted his scalp for the way he handled the raid, but Purvis kept his job and kept after Dillinger. And as bad as it all was, the little Bohemia raid did accomplish putting the fear of death into Dillinger and his cohorts, and they, unknowingly, began their downhill trek that would land almost every one of them in prison or in the grave. We'll return to our story right after this sponsor message. And now... Back to our story. For the Dillinger gang, things were headed downhill fast. In the hours after the shootout at the Little Bohemia Lodge, Dillinger, Van Meter, and Red Hamilton drove to St. Paul, but upon arriving there, realized that the news of the shootout and escape had already reached the public. Their car had been ID'd by the police, and they couldn't risk being seen, so they headed south into rural Wisconsin. At one point they became too exhausted to drive, so they pulled a car to the side on a rural road and fell asleep with Dillinger at the wheel, Van Meter in the passenger seat, and Red Hamilton in the back. They awoke to the sound of gunshots, and Hamilton cried out from the back seat. A bullet had passed through the trunk and the back seat and entered Hamilton's back, leaving a wound as big as a fifty-cent piece, and he was bleeding badly. Dillinger looked back and saw a police car parked about a quarter mile behind them, and two officers with hunting rifles were shooting at them. When they saw Dillinger get out of the car, they both climbed in their vehicle and headed away, presumably to get help. Dillinger got back in his car and headed for the nearest larger road they could find. They soon came upon a couple in their car, stopped them, and commandeered their vehicle. Early the next morning they were able to find bandages and tried to patch Hamilton up, but after 24 hours they knew that he was dying. Three more days passed, and Red Hamilton was dead. Dillinger later said that they buried Hamilton six feet deep in the sand dunes that lined the Indiana shoreline on Lake Michigan. The feds, responding to a tip, found a body buried two feet deep near Oswego, New York, and later insisted that the dental records matched those of Hamilton. But many don't believe the feds' story, and they've never unsealed that file. The whole Hamilton story has become an unsolved mystery in the world of Dillinger experts. On Thursday, May 24th, two East Chicago police officers named O'Brien and Mulvihill were killed while trying to pull over a red truck being driven by John Dillinger with the machine gun toting Van Meter in the back. The police never knew what hit them. Their car, with their bullet-ridden bodies inside, was found on the old Gary McAdam Road in a remote swampy area. The two officers left nine children behind, and the public was outraged when they saw the news. Dillinger's face was on the front page of every newspaper in the country by that time. Wanted posters were attached to storefront windows. He could go nowhere without being recognized, and was becoming more and more reliant upon Louis Piquette, his crooked attorney, and Arthur O'Leary, who was Piquette's investigator. 
Much of the true story of Dillinger's actions in 1934 would come from these two men. They kept contact with Dillinger's girlfriend, Billy, who ended up getting sentenced to Leavenworth for two years. They made sure debts were paid for various services and arranged meeting times between Dillinger and his gang members and cronies, as well as doctor visits. They also provided safe harbor for Dillinger and Van Meter. One of those various services they provided included an operation to change Dillinger's face and make it less recognizable. Piquette lined up a doctor whose real name was Loser, who had done some time in Leavenworth, but was paroled and making money doing odd jobs for wanted men, like removing fingerprints. In addition to Loser, Piquette also came up with Dr. Harold Bernard Cassidy, a young physician whom the police had been looking for ever since he perjured his testimony at a trial for bank robbery. Piquette's personal phone book must have looked like a who's who for wanted men in 1934. Whoever you needed for any job, lawyer Piquette had access to him. And Dillinger paid him well. Piquette always made sure he received cash before the service was rendered. When the day for the surgery came, Cassidy's job was to administer the ether which served as the painkiller for the operation. Cassidy had placed a cone over Dillinger's face and was applying the ether in small amounts. But Dillinger wouldn't go under. So Cassidy decided to use the whole can. When Dillinger's face turned blue and his breathing and heartbeat stopped, the doctors, now in a panic, threw open the windows to let the fumes escape. Dillinger started showing signs of life about ten minutes later, and the operation resumed. They cut away three moles on his forehead, removed a small scar on his upper lip, made small slits on the lobes of both ears, pulled back the skin in order to remove the lines under his cheeks, raised the drooping corners of Dillinger's mouth, filled the dimple on his chin, and built up his nose. Afterwards, Dillinger was happy with the job, although Paquette said he looked like he'd been in a dogfight. When Van Meter saw Dillinger's remodeled face, he told Paquette to line him up for surgery the next day. The cost? $5,000. But when it was over, complete with an acid treatment to remove his fingerprints, Van Meter was furious. The doctors became fearful for their lives. In order to placate Van Meter, Dr. Loser came up with the bright idea to provide Van Meter and Dillinger with new identities. This seemed to satisfy Van Meter, who looked pretty much the same except that his face looked like he'd been in a knife fight, which it had been, sort of. Dillinger's round face had been easy to change. Van Meter's face was long, narrow, and bony. Not so easy. If Van Meter had known how much time he had left, he would have kept the money. Dillinger and Van Meter hid out in Piquette's home for a month or two in the spring of 1934, keeping a low profile. During this time, Dillinger had compiled a list of the people he wanted to kill, including a police detective named Renicky, who, it was said, had smacked Billy around trying to get information on Dillinger's whereabouts. Louis Piquette talked Dillinger out of going on that killing spree, saying it would bring the entire city down on both of them, and Dillinger held back. Dillinger wasn't a murderer at heart, he had killed only when confronted by armed men with guns trying to kill him. Planned cold-blooded murders just weren't his forte. He and Van Meter were getting itchy to pull off a bank robbery, however, and on Saturday, June 30th, 1934, they pulled off what was to be the last Dillinger Gang bank robbery. We haven't mentioned every robbery in this story. There were over two dozen robberies done by the Dillinger Gang, robberies that netted over $300,000 in the ten months that they were robbing banks. This robbery was the Merchants National Bank in South Bend, Indiana. Dillinger, Van Meter, Babyface Nelson, and a fourth man who was thought to be Jack Perkins pulled up in front of the bank around noon. 
Dillinger went in first, carrying a machine gun, followed by Perkins and Nelson. Van Meter stood out front as a lookout. Dillinger ordered the customers and employees to lie on the floor while Nelson hopped over the counter and began scooping money into a bag. Outside, people started screaming and running for cover as police started to show up. Someone had tripped the alarm. The police had handguns, and Van Meter had his machine gun, and slugs were whizzing everywhere, along the street, and even into the bank. The bank cashier was shot in the leg. The bank VP was wounded in the hip. A bystander was hit in the abdomen, and the question of who shot who is left to history. Van Meter was shooting at every police target he could find. A farmer named Kenneth Beers had just driven into town in his open coupe with his wife and child, and his car decided to stall at the town's only traffic light, which was right in the middle of the gun battle. Howard Wagner, a traffic policeman, took cover behind Beer's car and was firing at Van Meter. Van Meter, in the process of spraying the street to keep the police undercover, could have hit Wagner, but was obviously trying not to hit the car with the family in it. Beers' car finally started and he gave it gas, heading down the street suddenly and leaving Wagner standing out in the open. Van Meter riddled Wagner with bullets. At that point, Dillinger ran out of the bank, followed by baby-faced Nelson, who told Dillinger to shove over and took the wheel, and as he did so, a bullet passed through Nelson's hat. Had it been Dillinger, who was in the driver's seat just a moment before, that would have ended it for him, as he was at least four inches taller than Nelson. Van Meter ran toward the car, and just as he was about to climb into the back seat, he was hit with a twenty-two caliber bullet fired from the local jewelry store owner. The bullet struck Van Meter at his hairline, then traveled along his scalp, emerging about six inches from where it entered, leaving Van Meter dazed and slightly wounded. The fourth man involved in the robbery was never mentioned afterwards. Two officers shot at the car as it sped out of town, but there was no pursuit. A civilian was shot in the eye by one of the officers shooting at the car as it sped away. Dillinger had two major weaknesses, banks and women. He said once that he couldn't walk by a bank without wanting to rob it. J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director, said this about John Dillinger. He had his weaknesses, women for one thing, and a flair for the spectacular. It was in East Chicago, home then and now to the worst of criminals as well as corrupt politics and politicians, that Dillinger met Anna Sage, the woman who's known to history as the Lady in Red. Anna Sage, her real name, Kumpanyas, was an Austro-Hungarian-born Romanian prostitute and brothel owner in Chicago and Gary, Indiana. Her brothel on Halsted Street in Chicago, which she opened in 1932, was well known to the police who, when they discovered that she was a love interest of Dillinger's, threatened her with deportation if she didn't help them to take him down. She had worked her way up through the trade by working for Big Bill Subdovich on Guthrie Street in Chicago, where she met and became close with Martin Zarkovich, who was a dirty cop who was moving up quickly in rank in Chicago due to his ability to get and act upon information from his low-life contacts. With Anna, as with many others, he leveraged their weaknesses, allowing them to continue with their illegal activities in return for information, as well as a cut. When Big Bill died, Anna took over his business and invested in a second brothel in Gary. This brothel became infamous as a wild place and picked up the name the bucket of blood for the number of men who had been stabbed in the basement. One of the girls who worked for Anna and Gary was named Polly Hamilton, who left there to hustle at the Malden Plaza Hotel in Chicago and kept close friends with some of the Dillinger gang members, especially John. It was Polly who introduced Dillinger to Anna Sage. By July 4, 1934, 
There was a $15,000 reward on John Dillinger's head, dead or alive. Many theorize that East Chicago Police Sergeant Zarkovich saw an opportunity to make some serious money and get some of the internal investigators off his back, so he cooked up a deal with Anna Sage, who was his snitch as long as he held the threat of deportation over her head to betray her boyfriend, John Dillinger. Dillinger was hiding out at Polly Hamilton's apartment at 2420 North Halstead Street in the Lincoln Fullerton neighborhood, along with Anna Sage and her son Steve. In the middle of July, Zarkovich arranged an appointment between Anna Sage and the FBI's rising star in Chicago, Agent Melvin Purvis. On the afternoon of Sunday, July 13, 1934, Anna called Purvis and told him to get ready. Dillinger had invited Anna and Polly to a movie that evening. She wasn't sure which theater they were going to, but she told Purvis that if it was the biograph, she would be hatless and wearing a bright orange skirt with a white blouse. If it was the Marlboro across town, she would wear the orange skirt and white blouse along with a hat. As it turned out, the biograph was playing a gangster movie called Manhattan Melodrama, starring Clark Gable, Myrna Loy, and William Powell. Gangster movies were, as you might expect, Dillinger's favorite. The theater was located on Chicago's north side, just around the corner from Anna's apartment. It was a hot day, over a hundred degrees, and Dillinger was wearing neatly pressed gray trousers and a white shirt. Polly was wearing a tan skirt, white blouse, tan hose, and white sandals. Anna was wearing exactly what she said she'd be wearing. She was hatless, with a white blouse and a bright orange, not red, skirt. They arrived at the theater at half-past eight. A huge banner had been hung below the biograph marquee reading, COOLED BY REFRIGERATION, ALL IN CAPITALS. And it was. Blocks of ice were being delivered into the theater basement in an effort to cool things down. Having seen Dillinger and his two female friends arrive, a force of more than 20 federal agents whose job it was to cover the front and back exits began to take their assigned positions. With them were Zarkovich, O'Neill, Glenn Stretch, Peter Sopcich, and Walter Conroy of the Chicago Police Force, under the command of Inspector Samuel Cowley, who was actually FBI and had been sent by Hoover. The rest were FBI agents under the command of Melvin Purvis. The theater manager was told by some late-arriving moviegoers that police were gathering, so they called the police to find out what was happening. A Chicago squad car arrived and was met by Melvin Purvis, who turned them around, telling them everything was under control. Purvis and some of his men walked into the theater hoping to spot Dillinger, but didn't see him. They soon decided to get back outside so as not to cause a disturbance should anything happen. He had told his men that when they saw him light his cigar, that would mean he had Dillinger in sight. The men had been told that one of the women with Dillinger would be wearing an orange skirt. At 10.35 p.m., Dillinger, Anna, and Polly walked out of the theater. Purvis spotted them and lit a cigar. The federal agents and police saw it and rushed forward. Purvis yelled, John! Dillinger then pushed Anna and Polly aside and pistol shots rang out. Charles Winstead shot three times, one of those being a fatal headshot. Agent Clarence Hurt shot twice, and Herman Hollis shot once. Winstead's bullet entered the back of Dillinger's neck and exited below his eye. Another entered his left side. Dillinger's momentum carried him two steps forward, and then he collapsed on his face on the bricks at the entrance to the alley. A crowd was gathering fast. Dillinger was dying. One agent took a pistol from Dillinger's hand, or so it was reported, while Zarkovich rifled Dillinger's pockets. 
The FBI said Dillinger was killed with only $7.71 on him, but others, including Anna Sage, say that Zarkovich pocketed a roll with a few thousand dollars in it. Due to crowd size, only five bullets had been fired, and the FBI, good shots as they were, managed to hit two bystanders, a woman, Miss Teresa Paulus, in the leg, and a Mrs. Netta Natowski in the ankle. It was an out-and-out execution, although the Chicago police and the FBI did their best to downplay that, hoping that the public sentiment would fall on their side. News of Dillinger's death flew through Chicago in minutes, and through the country and even internationally as well. Crowds of thousands came to the morgue hoping for a glimpse of America's famous gangster, all of them seeking a vicarious thrill for the chance to have something to tell their friends. They filed past Dillinger's lifeless and bloody body, gawking and gaping. As mentioned in our forward, the Chicago Tribune photograph shows two young bathing-suit-clad ladies in their twenties, smiling at the camera, while standing less than two feet from Dillinger's corpse. The men generally gaped, the women shuddered, and some screamed. It's a sad commentary on humanity when you try to picture that. And all the newspapers ate it up, expecting and getting record sales. On Tuesday morning, just before old John Dillinger arrived in a hearse to pick up his son's body, a group of college students asked if they could make a death mask, saying they had permission from Melvin Purvis. They were allowed to make it, but later, the police came and confiscated it. Early in the morning on July 25th, John Dillinger was buried in the Crown Point Cemetery at Indianapolis. On the morning after Dillinger's death, when news reached his gang members, they scattered like roaches under a strong porch light. Van Meter was certain that Dillinger had been sold out. In fact, he had warned John not to hang out with those East Side people, but John hadn't paid attention. Van Meter left that night for St. Paul with Marie Comfortee. Babyface Nelson, now number one on the FBI list, headed west to California, but only temporarily. Anna Sage had quickly dumped all of Dillinger's guns and bulletproof vests in a channel in Lincoln Park with the help of her son, but the police had already seized two keys that Dillinger had on his person, and one of those keys led to her apartment, and the other to the closet where Dillinger had stowed all of his weapons. When the police went there, there were no weapons remaining. Her complaint in the months to come was that she only received a $5,000 reward, and she'd been promised ten. Polly Hamilton went back to work as a nobody at the sandwich shop, where she occasionally made honest money during the daytime. She disappeared from history soon after. Mr. Probasco, an associate of the two doctors who had worked on Dillinger's face, was questioned by police while hanging out of an upper-story window, and somehow fell to an accidental death. The doctors were also found, and went to trial. Piquette and his investigator O'Leary, who were in this deeper than anyone, were brought to trial. As it turned out, O'Leary and the doctors got off on probation. Piquette, who had harbored criminals, taken money from them for services rendered, and greatly aided in their criminal enterprise, got off in his first trial. But there was a second in which he was sentenced to a $10,000 fine and two years in the federal penitentiary. On Sunday, August 3rd, in St. Paul, Minnesota, the police caught up with Van Meter as he was driving to an appointment. He had been ratted out by Babyface Nelson, of all people, who had gotten word that Van Meter was meeting an old associate. Nelson had returned from California to exact revenge on a number of people, including Anna Sage. But Nelson had had it in for Van Meter for a long time, probably out of jealousy. Anybody who even looked at Nelson's wife was subject to serious review. Back to Van Meter, a police car with four armed officers stood waiting for him at the intersection of University Avenue and Marion Street in St. Paul, 
The officers blocked him and ordered him to surrender, whereupon Van Meter exited his car, drew his gun, and ran toward Nally as police machine guns riddled his body with lead, dumping him headfirst into the mud. He had been shot off so many times that all ten fingers were shot off his hands. His girlfriend Marie Comfortee was arrested and tried in Duluth on charges of harboring Van Meter. She was found guilty and got one year and one day, the typical sentence for female accomplices. Back in Columbus, Ohio, Dillinger's old pals Pierpont and Makeley were just about to reenact Dillinger's Crown Point jailbreak when a newly installed iron door blocked their escape, leaving the guards no choice but to treat them to a lead sandwich, which they did. Pierpont somehow survived, although paralyzed, but they soon put him out of his misery in the electric chair. Babyface Nelson and his wife joined up with an associate named John Paul Chase and ran into a trap on November 27, 1934, but they saw it coming and drove out of it, with G-men in hot pursuit. At one point in the chase, Nelson got far enough ahead to turn around, and he soon passed the FBI's pursuit car, which contained agents Thomas McDade and William Ryan, headed in the opposite direction. Nelson turned around again and chased the FBI agent's car. Nelson's car was faster, and as he overtook the agent's car, he yelled at them to pull over. At that point, McDade hit the gas, and Agent Ryan broke the window out of the rear and leveled a high-power rifle at Nelson as the two cars exchanged fire while they raced at top speed back toward Chicago. A second car with two federal agents appeared and watched as the two cars sped past them, with Nelson chasing the agent's car. At that moment, Ryan got a lucky shot and hit the fuel pump in Nelson's car, which quickly caused engine failure. This allowed McDade and Ryan to escape with their lives, and they jumped out of their car further down the road, climbing into a patch of tall grass, expecting Nelson's car to come limping by so they could ambush it. But Nelson never appeared. They had no idea that a second FBI car had joined in the fight, and they weren't too eager to go looking for babyface Nelson, despite the fact that Nelson's car was about to die. Call it what you want. McDade and Ryan went back to Chicago to file a report. As Nelson's car limped into a park on the northeast edge of the town of Barrington, Helen Gillis leaped out and threw herself into a ditch. Nelson and Chase grabbed their weapons, deserted the car, and took up defensive positions. FBI Special Agent slash Inspector Sam Cowley, who had been handpicked by Hoover to put an end to the gangsters in Chicago, and FBI Special Agent Herman Hollis drove into the park, stopped their car, grabbed their weapons, which were a shotgun and a Thompson submachine gun, and responded to Nelson's fire, staying behind their car, until Hollis made a break for a nearby telephone pole so they could fire at Nelson from two different vantage points. A bullet hit Hollis in the head as he made his break and killed him instantly. FBI Inspector Cowley was also hit a number of times and was dying and managed to get lead into Nelson. In fact, Nelson had been hit 12 times and was bleeding heavily. Nelson's partner Chase saw that the two law officers were either dead or close to it and dragged Nelson to the police car calling for Helen. The three took off out of the park with Chase driving. Babyface Nelson's nude body was found the next day next to St. Paul Cemetery in Niles Center, known as Skokie today, just outside of Chicago. The bullet-ridden federal car was found deserted beside some railroad tracks near the town of Winnetka. Helen Gillis was found and arrested and sentenced to one year in the federal prison in Milan, Michigan. John Paul Chase headed for California, but was caught some time later and sentenced to life in Alcatraz. On April 25, 1936, the woman in red, Anna Sage, 
after two years of filing complaints trying to get the amount she'd been promised, was finally told to gather her belongings and get on a steamship for her native land, which she did, soon disappearing from history. FBI Director Herbert Hoover used his newfound popularity to grow the FBI's crime-fighting capabilities and secure his position, achieving this by keeping a closely-watched set of files on friends and enemies inside and out of the government. In government, then as now, many people at the top, or trying to get to the top, have a lot to hide. Hoover died in office in 1972. Melvin Purvis had incurred Hoover's wrath after the debacle at Little Bohemia, and although he was loved by the press and the public, Hoover did his best to place Purvis on the sidelines after that, assigning Sam Cowley to every matter of importance involving gang-busting. Purvis stayed close with Cowley, and was at Cowley's deathbed soon after he was mortally wounded by Babyface Nelson, making a blood promise to avenge Cowley's death. He had also managed to be there in Ohio when Pretty Boy Floyd was taken down. But Hoover headed in for Purvis, and began sending him on inspector duties that were far removed from anything Purvis had done before. And finally Purvis got fed up and submitted his resignation. Job offers came pouring in, but Hoover sabotaged every opportunity Purvis was offered in law enforcement. And for a while, the Super G-Man had to be content with heading up the Melvin Purvis Junior G-Man Club for post-toasty cereal. He was making good use of his spare time, however, writing a bestseller titled American Agent, which was published in 1936, a story in which the FBI Director Hoover remained nameless. Purvis took his own life on February 29, 1960. And finally, the little-known story about where the expression the lady in red actually came from. We know that Anna Sage wore orange that fateful night, in fact, she later complained to the FBI that she was being called the Lady in Red, and would they please do something about it? She was complaining about everything in those days. Here's the story. On the night of Dillinger's death, an unknown person, let's call him or her an unknown chronicler of life and death, wrote these words in chalk on the pavement near the Biograph Theater. Stranger, stop and wish me well. Just a prayer for my soul in hell. I was a good fellow, most people said, betrayed by a woman, all dressed in red. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We're a proud part of the 1001 Stories Network, where we offer a number of shows, including 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, where you can find classic short stories narrated by me from writers like Jack London and Zane Gray, and 1001 Greatest Love Stories where we just started a chapter-by-chapter narration on The Great Gatsby, and 1001 Stories for the Road, where we're currently doing the very popular Return of Tarzan. In addition to those, we also bring you 1001 Sherlock Holmes stories, 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre, 1001 Radio Days, and 1001 History's Best Storytellers. Never a boring moment. Great stories for your next drive, and all family-friendly. We're supported by advertisers as well as our Patreon supporters at patreon.com forward slash 1001storiesnetwork. And these folks who help us out monthly at Patreon are deeply appreciated. Please do leave us a review for 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries wherever you listen. Reviews help new listeners find us, and we appreciate them very much. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. We launch new episodes every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. 
Until next Sunday night at 8, please everyone stay safe, and we'll be back soon.